Okay, let us pray. Um, Father God, thank you so much, Lord, for this time and the opportunity that you have given to us. Lord, give us uh, wisdom and understanding to your word. And God, um, encourage our heart, Lord God, to apply this in our daily lives, oh Lord, uh, what we are learning today. And Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Janet. <clears throat> All right, so this morning, we are going to do 1 John 2, verses 18 through 21. So we've got four verses this morning. And it's going to be in uh, two main parts. We're going to look at what is the Antichrist spirit, and then what is the anointing spirit. Uh, but our overall title here is to resist Antichrists. And it is by our anointing that we have the ability to do so. <clears throat> so last week, we looked at 1 John 2, 15 through 17. So we want to remember that context as we come back to our verses today. So last week, we learned that we are not to love the world system. So as Christians, uh, we are to love the Lord and love the world with the love of the Lord but we are not to love the world system uh, by meaning getting involved in it and the passions of it. And the world has three different enemies that attack us, but the world itself is only one of three enemies that are against the Christian. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we have to beware of these three different adversaries, but the world attacks us in three different ways. It'll attack us with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So this is to do something contrary to the will of God, to have something contrary to the will of God, or to be something contrary to the will of God. So all three of these uh, are the sphere of being out of fellowship with God. If we are doing, having, or being anything contrary to what God has shown us through his will, uh, then we are stepping out of fellowship with him. And that's the goal of the enemy, because the enemy cannot take us out of his hand, but he can make us ineffective. He can make our Christian walk useless uh, for anything other than salvation. Okay, we've got a chat here. Hello, everyone. Hi, Lisa. We're glad you're here. <clears throat> All right, so our first text for this morning, 1 John 2, 18 through 19, is going to be about this Antichrist spirit. And it's by this Antichrist spirit that those other sins will enter into the teaching of the church. So we read, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. So what John's doing here is he's building a logical statement on if this is true, then this is true. Therefore, this is true. So what he's saying here is that, first of all, we know what time it is in our uh, historical calendar here. 
because Christ said that the Antichrist would come at the end of the age. John is pointing out that although the final Antichrist is not here, there are many who are coming in the spirit of the Antichrist. Thus, we are quickly approaching that last time in history where the Antichrist will put himself up to be the Christ. Uh, but these Antichrists are pitting their message against Christ's message um, and trying to say that, for example, maybe Christ has not appeared in the flesh. This was one common heresy back in John's day that he's probably combating here. But these antichrists are indicative of the last era, and that last era is our church age. Uh, as well, we see a logical statement here in verse 19 about John's uh, logical reasoning that they are not from the apostolic message. They're not bringing the same message to the church. And he said, because they went out from us, now this is meaning departed, they departed from us, they separated, uh, therefore they were never part of us to begin with. So we're going to take a look at these four different ideas uh, with a couple other texts in scripture, uh, the last hour, the Antichrist, and the Antichrists. But notice also that John uh, brings us back to this idea of children. He's calling us children because this word for children, paideia, is someone who knows God intimately, uh, such as a toddler would recognize his mother or his father, but it also is in that stage where they are learning a lot. They are apprehending whatever they are being taught. So we want to be as receptive as children to learning what John has to say here. Uh, will you give us an example of what it means not of us? Yes, we're actually going to look at those Greek at the Greek for that as well. Uh, in about two verses, we're going to look at that. All right, but first we want to see this end of the age idea. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, Paul tells us of the end of the age saying, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by, in by those who believe and know the truth. So there are going to be teachers entering into the church who have doctrines contrary to the original apostolic message. And these, uh, these doctrines that these false prophets or these false preachers are adding into the doctrines of the church are going to be like a stumbling block for the church where they're going to argue over this doctrine or argue over this doctrine rather than holding fast to the truth. They're going to be uh, stumbling over all of these uh, legalistic rules or also licentious rules, um, either permissions or uh, further restraints on the liberty that we have in Christ. In 1 Peter 4, we see a similar idea. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, 
because love covers a multitude of sins. So as Peter's looking towards this uh, climax of the age, he is saying we need to be of sound judgment and of sober spirit. Now, how do we judge the will of God? How do we judge God's word? We judge it from the word. So we have to be in God's word constantly to know what his message is, to know what sound doctrine is, because uh, he's given us this gift of the word in order to check so that we can check when preachers or teachers uh, teach a new doctrine, we can check it with the scripture. And if it doesn't align with scripture, we have to dismiss it. But we also have to be sober in spirit uh, for the purpose of prayer. So we have to be walking in the light by means of the spirit uh, and be prayerful about our uh, studies, about our testing of the spirits. And this is all, again, for the purpose of loving one another, because in order to have fellowship both with God and with Jesus Christ, we need to be in the truth, but also to have fellowship with our fellow Christians. We need to be of one mind together. We're one body. We can't have multiple diverse uh, doctrines. We, we can't over here affirm uh, the absolute deity and absolute humanity of Christ, but over here say, uh, but he was just a human. These two groups uh, can't have fellowship together. <clears throat> okay, returning to Paul, uh, he writes in Romans 13, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Now this is talking about our ultimate salvation, the return of Jesus Christ, where we will be made like him. We already have our security for salvation, the promise that he will return. But this is saying the salvation that we are born into through our spiritual rebirth or regeneration, it is closer to us uh, every moment. He continues, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Remember, we're supposed to be walking in the light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So remember last week, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts uh, of the eye and the pride of life. These are ways that the world is going to try to draw us out of fellowship with God, but we have to be on guard against those, not by our will, by our means, by our power, but by resting in Jesus Christ, by resting in the spirit, that when we are walking with God by means of the spirit, uh, there's no provision that can be made there for the flesh and uh, the lusts of the flesh. And that means not giving it an opportunity. And uh, finally, we see here in Revelation 16, uh, this white horse that is going to appear at the end of the age. And some interpret this to be the Antichrist himself, but all four of these horsemen uh, from the four horsemen seem to indicate a governmental movement uh, that is an Antichrist movement. And this will last for the first three and a half years of the coming tribulation age that 
the end of this age will culminate in seven years of judgment. And the Antichrist himself will be a part of this movement, but won't at first be uh, discernible from the larger government. It's not until the midpoint of the tribulation, the halfway point, when he is indwelt by Satan himself, that we can absolutely with certainty say this is the Antichrist. Up until that point, he will be part of a system of 10 kings, uh, conquering three of those kings and then eventually rising above all 10 of those kings. But this Antichrist spirit, these Antichrists or this Antichrist movement will all culminate in this one world government that is going to be eventually headed by the Antichrist himself. So we read how that government comes to fruition or comes to be uh, at the beginning of the tribulation period. We can have an idea of the progress that it needs to make from the first century up until the last days of the church age. So we read, then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, come, I looked and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So this uh, picture of this white horse, this antichrist spirit that will come about after the church is removed from this earth, is one of conquering, but also one of peace. He's going to peacefully conquer his enemies, and he will be looked at as a savior, as a rescuer. And that just happens to be uh, the direction that our world is headed in today, where we call good evil and we call evil good where this antichrist spirit will be looked at as the ideal and the spirit of Christ himself will be looked at as evil, where Christians are seen as bigoted or uh, single-minded and then all evil, licentious or even legalistic ideas are going to be looked at as the ideal that one should attain to. That is the antichrist spirit that is coming upon this world calling good evil and evil good. And Christ warned of this one man who would uh, enter into the temple at the midpoint of the tribulation and call himself God. This is the ultimate climax of the Antichrist spirit, where it's seeking to replace God, not to, uh, not to submit to God, to the reality of who God is and his position over the universe, but rather to subvert him to put himself in the place of God and say that he is God. So Jesus Christ warns, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. <clears throat> All right, so what should we do then? Uh, since these antichrists are uh, supposed to be all around us, even from the first century of the church, now we're in the, what, the 19th or 20th century of the church. Uh, how are we to be on guard against these, uh, these spirits of the antichrist? And first John is going to give us uh, this answer a little later in the text, but we want to jump there real quick. So that's in 1 John 4 we're taught to test the spirits, and we've been given the means to test the spirits as well, and that's going to be our next section of verses. But 
it says here, beloved, do not believe every spirit. So when something comes giving us a new teaching, we don't believe it right away. We have to check it with the scriptures and we have to check it with the spirit. And if it passes those two tests, if it conforms to the original message of scripture, and it also is not grievous to the spirit, then uh, we are able to accept that doctrine. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. So we see that a key factor in testing the spirits is what do they say about Jesus Christ? Did he come as God? Did he come as man? Did he come to take away the sins of the world? Uh, there are many different nuances and ways that the Antichrist have gotten around this test, but at the true heart of it, these Antichrist spirits and doctrines will not teach that Jesus Christ is God in flesh come to take away the sins of the world. That message alone uh, is from scripture. Janet writes here, will you please clarify, even with the elect, what does that mean, even the elect fall into the Antichrist? Clarification, please. Absolutely. So this concept of the elect, uh, back in Matthew 24, uh, he's talking to a Jewish audience, so it's most likely here that he is speaking to, uh, to Jews as the elect. This period of history, this final seven years that Jesus is looking forward to during this Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, is an age that will be primarily Jewish, where the church will have already been removed. So if elect here means the church, then he, Satan would need to be deceiving a body of Christians, which are existing in heaven at that time. So this does not mean the church. Uh, this means God's elect or his chosen, which is his chosen nation, Israel. The purpose of that seven-year uh, period is basically to, to end the period of grace, where they're still given the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they're presented with the very real alternative of choosing Satan. So the misleading of the elect here is really the battle for the heart of the Jews battle for the heart of Israel, is will Israel accept Jesus Christ as their king, or will they call Satan as their king? And ultimately, they will call for Jesus Christ as their king. We read in Matthew 23, 39, that uh, Jesus Christ will return to Israel when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, that this is the call for Jesus to become their king. And that at that point, Will bring in the end of that tribulation period. So when you see this elect, this word elect, we have to be careful with it. It doesn't always mean the exact same thing. Just because a word is spelled the same and has the same root doesn't mean that in its context it means the same thing as we have in our minds. We have to look at the context, look at the audience, and judge each case individually. What does it mean? Uh, I've 
I've heard the word uh, trunk used as well as an example. If someone says, uh, go get my trunk, well, it's kind of hard to know what do they mean. Do they mean a tree trunk? Do they mean the trunk of a car? Do they mean a treasure chest trunk? Do they mean the trunk of an elephant? Uh, trunk has many different words and different meanings. Now, elect is an adjective here used as a noun. Uh, so it has one basic meaning, but who this adjective applies to can be different depending on the context. So here in context, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience before the creation of the church, and he's speaking about a time in history where the or in history future where the church will not exist on this earth. So by means of uh, narrowing down the possibilities, elect here can only refer to the Jewish people in the last days. Uh, so hopefully, Janet, that helps. Okay, good. All right. Uh, so looking here at 2nd John, so this is going to be the letter that John writes after the epistle we're looking at now, and he's going to write it to a local community of believers, probably in Ephesus. And he writes, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what you have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. So John is taking here his own advice. We see him practicing what he's preaching, where he is using this, uh, this test case to say, these teachers are teaching that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. This is contrary to the teaching of the apostolic uh, message. Therefore, it is the Antichrist spirit. It is the Antichrist doctrine because it is contrary to the original message. And then he goes on beyond that to say, watch yourselves. Be careful. Don't fall into these doctrines. But what is the the consequence of falling into those doctrines, you don't lose your salvation, but you may lose your full reward, where uh, we have the opportunity to be building up rewards in heaven, and we don't build them up by our own power, but through our fellowship with the Spirit, as the Spirit works through us, we build up rewards in heaven. So if we are falling out of fellowship by falling out of sound doctrine, then we are falling out of that opportunity to be building up rewards in heaven. For as long as we are out of fellowship with the Spirit, we cannot, by any means of our own, be making, uh, making these ends to the reward in heaven. So we have to be of sound doctrine, of sound mind, of, uh, of the one body of faith, which is the true faith here. In scripture, we can't be falling into these false doctrines. We have to be testing them with the scripture by means of the spirit. All right, so this verse 19, uh, the origins of division is not in the original message, but by changes or additions to the message. That's where division happens. And it all focuses here around this Greek particle X. You see this thing that looks like E3. That's Greek particle X, and it's used in almost all of these cases. Uh, so it's a kind of a theme particle here. So we want to be interested mostly in what are the verbs that this particle or that this uh, 
preposition is uh, functioning together with. In this verb, depart or to leave from, to go away, uh, this is uh, ex ericomai. Ericomai just means to leave, and it has the idea of bringing yourself uh, somewhere else. So you're taking yourself and removing yourself and putting yourself somewhere else, this ex ericomai. So it says, they went out from us, they made themselves to move away from the original message, from the original body of the apostles. They were not of us. So they were able to remove themselves because they were never a part of them to begin with. So he's saying these false prophets didn't at one point teach a correct message and now have shifted to teaching a wrong doctrine, but rather their doctrines were always contrary to ours. So even if they said, we too are apostles, he's saying, no, they weren't. They were never part of this group. Okay, we got another question here. Erkomai <clears throat> uh, desire. I think that's ekomai. Yeah, erkomai um, with the row is uh, to go away <clears throat> or to go. And then ex erkomai is to go from, uh, similar to, what is it, um, up or, no. There's another erkomai with a different particle at the beginning that means to go into. So this with the particle x is to go away from, and it's actually x, x erkomai. So it's using a double preposition here. One is a preposition, one is a particle for the verb. Uh, so it really has the sense of they cut and ran, like they're totally distinct from us at this point. So notice these verbs, to be, and this is the be of state, to be of the same body, um, to exist, essentially. So they were not existing as part of us. But this us is also uh, contradictory to the previous pronoun used in the last verse about the Antichrist, which was they. They and us have nothing to do with each other. They is a third person plural. Us is a first person plural, which can accept both the first and the second person into this first person plural, but absolutely excludes the third person plural. Third person plural cannot exist inside the pronoun us. So it's saying this pronoun of they, this antichrist, them, is not and has never been part of us. Where did this deviation happen? We see that if they had been of us, if they had come from us, uh, they would have remained with us. This remain is the Greek verb meno, which is the same remain as we are commanded to do in the vine, that we are supposed to meno in the vine with Jesus Christ um, or with the spirit. So that we are called to remain in fellowship it says here that had they been part of our message, they would have remained with us in the sense of remaining in fellowship, remaining in this same doctrine. But because their doctrines change, because their doctrines move away from the apostolic message, then we know for a fact that they are not part of us because if they had been part of us, their doctrines would not have changed because God does not change. So when God is doing a new thing here in the church, 
the doctrines which he lays down from the beginning are going to be the doctrines that we hold to, that these apostles have the one true message. Everyone else is departing from the truth. Uh, and finally, we see this demonstrated, this depart. We again, again go back to this ex, ex ercomai, where they went out from us. Therefore, they show themselves or they prove, they, they make it known that they are not of us. So by their own demonstration, by their own example of their actions, they have demonstrated that they are of a different body. They are not from the apostolic body. So an example of that is today, there are many people who call themselves apostles in the church. They'll say, well, I'm Apostle John, or I'm Apostle Tom. These are not real apostles. The real apostles uh, had original, uh, had, had the original connection to Jesus Christ in the first century, that after that first generation of people who witnessed Jesus Christ died away, that first generation that was confirmed through miracles, that generation died away, and there are no more apostles after that. So John here is specifically warning us against people who will come saying, I'm an apostle, and I have a new word from God. He's saying, no, this will not happen. Um, so be on guard of people who say, I'm apostle so-and-so. It's not true. Uh, in fact, they are the antichrist that John is warning about. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, we read about the unity of this body. And this is one of two examples that Jesus Christ gives, or that John gives, sorry, Paul gives about the unity of the body. And he gives it in terms of the two sacraments of the church, baptism and communion. So let's look at those. We read, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So he's saying that the message of Jesus Christ, though it's made up of these multiple apostles and these uh, large numbers of church members, uh, being both Jews or Gentiles, both slaves or free, so regardless of class system, regardless of race, we're all brought into the one body, but despite the diversity of the makeup of the church, there is only one message. We're all baptized into the same message of Jesus Christ. Therefore, there cannot be two different messages. It is consistent from day one to the last day. The other example that Paul uses is uh, communion. He writes, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Remember, Hebrews tells us Christ can only die once. This shedding of blood is only once. There can't be a new message confirmed by a new shedding of blood. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So we have to be united in message, united in this spirit, in the baptism, in the communion, through having sound doctrine and the same doctrine. Uh, we have to put aside doctrines which we wish were true or want to be true, 
or things that tickle our ears is one way that scripture puts it. Um, and we have to adhere to the truth because anything else is choosing to lie to ourselves. Remember, that is how John began his, um, his epistle saying that if anyone says he doesn't sin, he's a liar. If anyone says he's not sinning, he's practicing lies. Um, if anyone is um, not walking in the light, but walking in darkness, and he says he has fellowship with the Lord, he's a liar. Uh, this is very much the same, where if he comes saying that he is part of the body of Christ, that he's part of this apostolic message, but he comes bringing a different message, he's lying. He's the Antichrist spirit. So we have to be on guard for that. In Acts 20, Paul warns us that these different um, these people with different messages are coming. Um, this is about um, AD 60, so 25 years or so before John wrote this epistle. Paul writes, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So part of this world system that we have to deal with means that the church living in the world, which is ruled by Satan, will have to be careful of those tares that grow up alongside us that were never saved to begin with. They have never believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Uh, they were grown up from the seed of Satan, carrying the message of Satan, which is contrary to the message of Christ uh, and contrary to the message of these apostles. Well, they're going to come into the flock, not sparing the flock. They're going to be like wolves coming in among sheep. Their goal is to pick us off one at a time, not for us to lose our salvation because they're incapable of taking from us what God has secured, but in making us as good as dead here on earth where our message is made null. Uh, so they're going to come specifically with these messages of some perverse things seeking to draw disciples after themselves. So when you see people coming into the church, building up a, a congregation of, uh, well, I shouldn't use names, but basically uh, making themselves, well, I can use an example. If you've ever heard of Benny Hinn, he's a, um, a faith healer, but his message draws people to him, not to Jesus Christ. And it's by his power that he calls down the spirit and says, I'm healing you or I'm slaying you in the spirit. Well, these people follow after Benny Hinn. They're not following after Jesus Christ. And that's the goal of the Antichrist spirit is to get people to follow after the person, not after the Jesus Christ. We could call these mini cults of personality where they get a cult following. In 2 Peter uh, 2, verse 1, we read, but false prophets are also arose among people of the, the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So they're going to come in and look as if they are part of the church, look as if they are giving uh, sound doctrine. But when you really bring this doctrine down and see what its root is, you realize that this is not the original message of Jesus Christ. It's not the original message of, of the apostles, that Jesus Christ came to give life and to give it more abundantly. He came to set the captives free. He came 
uh, so that by faith in him, we can have eternal life. Uh, this is the message of Christ. And to add anything to that faith is to change that message. So Jude says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And this is about, uh, what is this, 80 AD, so 20 years after Paul wrote. Jude writes, uh, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. That means they're already in the church. We didn't notice them coming, just like Peter said, just like Paul said. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So they, again, fall out of line with the message of John, where he says, uh, check, what do they say about Jesus Christ? Jude here is saying, they're saying Jesus Christ isn't the master. They're saying uh, his message isn't the true message. These are liars in the Antichrist. All right, we're going to go through this one a little qu uh, quicker. It's two verses, but they're shorter. And this is basically our power to combat these false doctrines. So we saw just now what the false message is. And now we get to see that God has equipped us already. We don't need to go and do anything extra uh, to be on guard. We just have to recognize that these doctrines are out there so that we can be careful when they come up. We don't need to stress out about it, but we just need to seek the spirit and test it in the word. We want to be like the Bereans of Acts 11, uh, where we want to search the scriptures daily uh, to see whether this message is true. So in 1 John 2, 20 through 21, we read, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you, know, because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So uh, first, we want to look at this pronoun you. This is, again, contrary to that they. Remember that they is the Antichrist spirit. The us is the apostles. When he's saying you, he's speaking as a direct second person plural to the people he is writing to, who he's identified as saved believers. He's saying you as saved believers have an anointing from the Holy One, and the Holy One is God. But remember, John conflates the idea of God and Jesus in his mind when, he, when he's um, using these non-distinct uh, titles for God and Jesus, he's looking at them as one unit. So he's saying the Holy One has given you this anointing. And this is the same anointing that Jesus Christ promised, the baptism through the Holy Spirit. And it's the same uh, anointing that God the Father has done to every single believer at the time of their salvation. Uh, so we're going to look what is the anointing and what does it mean that we all know. We're going to focus here just on the anointing. Uh, because we know who the Holy One is, that refers to God, and then we'll see by what the function of the anointing is, how it is that we know. So at the time of faith, uh, we have salvation. Those are congruent ideas that when we have faith, uh, we also have salvation. But the Holy Spirit is the one who is intimately working in us um, in order to bring that about. Before we have salvation, the Holy Spirit convicts us of judgment. It restrains the world. Those are its two functions before salvation. 
But once we're saved, we have a different relationship to the Holy Spirit. He does three things in us immediately, and then one thing in us progressively afterwards. What he does in us progressively is he fills us, that as we are walking in the Spirit, he fills us, giving us the enablement to walk in a way pleasing to the Lord and serving the Lord. But at the moment we are saved, we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That means born again into a new spiritual birth. And this has the idea of Jesus Christ coming into us, that when we are reborn, we are reborn through the, uh, the death of Jesus Christ. So a key verse for this is Colossians 1.27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So our rebirth gives us this hope of the glory to come. Uh, the idea is that regeneration is the new birth of the believer at the time of salvation. It is the divine impartation of the nature of God. The Spirit also baptizes us one time and one time alone into the body of Christ. So this is the idea of you or all of us in Jesus Christ. So there is Jesus Christ in us and we in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30, uh, by doing or and by his doing, you are in Christ. Uh, the spirit baptism is the work of the spirit at the time of salvation, placing the believer positionally in Christ. So we are identified with the body of Christ because we have been baptized by the spirit. Now, I want to also include the idea that this regeneration and this baptism especially, these are not experiential truths. These are not something that we feel. These are truths that we learn only through revelation, that because scripture tells us these truths, that is our guarantee that they are true. When we are regenerated, when we are baptized by the Spirit, we don't feel this. Uh, this is not something we're meant to feel, but um, it is something that is true of every single believer. Now, the indwelling is a little different because some of these functions of the indwelling have both a positional truth and an experiential truth. Uh, but what we're looking at here, what we're focusing on is particularly the positional truths, not the experiential side of these. Um, so the indwelling has three different uh, functions here. It has the abiding of the Holy Spirit within every believer, the anointing of every believer by God through the Spirit, or with the Spirit rather, and we also have the assurance of our future glory. Sometimes this assurance is called a seal of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. Sometimes it's called a pledge. Uh, Paul likes to call it a pledge or an earnest, he'll say, which is basically a down payment on a future um, gain. So this assurance of future glory is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that just as it lives in us, so we will be conformed to the image of Christ at the end of the age. You can look at uh, Philippians 1.6 as well, that he who began a good work in you will continue until the day of the Lord. That's the assurance that we have. But what we want to focus on here is the anointing, uh, that this anointing is an anointing to service. And it is an anointing also that every Christian has, has received and that they only receive once. This anointing is the divine impartation of the Holy Spirit to the believer. And it's this, uh, this noun, chrisma, from the Greek, and it has a verb form, creo, 
Well, only in 1 John do we see this Greek word, chrisma, uh, this noun. Uh, but in the other epistles, we see it in verb form, creo. Uh, Janet says, if not a feeling of baptizing, what is the sign that you are baptized by the Holy Spirit? Hope my question makes sense. Yes, the sign that you are baptized by the Holy Spirit is if you have believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So uh, the time of faith, these are all positional truths of the believer that happen at the exact moment of salvation, that they are salvational truths. So only believe, yes, only believing that if you believe then you have been inducted into the body of Christ, that that moment of regeneration is also your moment of baptism, that we are baptized with the death of Christ, that we die with him and we are baptized. I think that's Romans, Romans 7, Romans 8. I think it's Romans 7, uh, the died together with Christ. So we are risen together with Christ. Uh, that is our baptism into the body of Christ. So it's, it's the same uh, timing. All of these things happen at the exact same time, the regeneration, the baptizing, and the indwelling. And we don't feel any of them happening. That's why sometimes we're expecting a feeling when, or when someone is saved, they're expecting a feeling and they don't get it. And they wonder, well, did it work? <laughs> well, yes, it worked because salvation isn't an experiential thing. It's a, it's a positional truth that once we have believed, uh, we are given all of the tools at one time. But that doesn't mean that these tools are actually yet working in us. Regeneration is working in us, baptism is working in us, the indwelling is working in us, but what those, uh, what those give off as fruits, that might not be seen yet. The fruit will come after the position is founded. Um, so that would be, for example, the filling of the Holy Spirit is possible in the believer because of his positional truths. And this filling happens as we abide in the Spirit. Okay, so this chrisma, uh, has the idea of a service or a function that as we are anointed, we're anointed specifically for a service, for a purpose, for a function. Uh, we're anointed for a blessing, dedication, or a consecration. Uh, that means like a divine separation and putting aside for a specific duty. Um, and this is the duty of the will of God. We read in 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 4 through 5, and also verse 9, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is a choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the priesthood in the Old Testament was specifically a position that required anointing, that they would be anointed by a prophet and thus become a priest. Uh, so we, as the holy priesthood, have this anointing with the Holy Spirit in order to induct us into the body of the priesthood. As well, we read at nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this holy or royal priesthood, this holy nation, has the idea of uh, 
the kingdom, but not the kingdom that will come after the tribulation, the kingdom of God, but rather our possession or position in the heavenlies together with Jesus Christ, who is our king. This is the Lord's ruling in our hearts as, uh, as sojourners here on this earth, but citizens of heaven. That as part of this citizenry, we are priests, uh, such as the Levites were uh, in the Old Testament uh, in Israel. And in 1 Samuel 16, 13, we see also David anointed as king, and he's anointed uh, and given a blessing of the Holy Spirit. So it says, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. So this idea of regeneration and baptism and anointing, uh, though specifically a church age function of the Holy Spirit, we see that the Holy Spirit has functioned in similar ways for individuals, not the church at large, not the entire saved body of God in, in Israel, but for David here at his anointing, he was both anointed for his service but also given the power or the tools through the Holy Spirit for that service, that it's not expected that he, by his own might, by his own ability, serve the Lord, but rather through the Spirit working in him. So in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22, we see this idea as well. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. God is the one who anoints us, and he's the one who places us in Christ, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. So uh, the giving of the spirit is also a sealing, a pledge, or an affirmation that we will experience final salvation as well. And finally, uh, what is the practical application then of this anointing? We see that it is true of all Christians uh, we see that it is the power of God, uh, not unto salvation in this case, but unto right living after we have been saved. Remember, uh, <clears throat> let's see. So in 1 John 2, 27, a little later in our text here, we see what, the, what this anointing does for us. Uh, it says, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So we only really need two factors in order to understand the truth. We need scripture, and we need the spirit. That by means of the spirit, we can understand scripture. Without the spirit, when we read scripture, we can understand it as head knowledge, but it means absolutely nothing to our hearts. We can think it does, um, but we know that the experience prior to salvation and after salvation when we read scripture is entirely and completely different. It is incomprehensible to the unbeliever, uh, the understanding that the spirit allows the believer. Uh, so you could be locked away on a desert island and have the activity pre-salvation of the Holy Spirit to convict and to restrain, working with you through the scriptures that you're reading. Through that, you can come to salvation, and at that moment, the rest of scripture is unlocked to you. 
that as long as you are abiding in the spirit as you read and interpret the scriptures, that's really all you do need. It's going to be a lot harder to do it on your own than to receive help from others, from teachers um, as well. But even those teachers, their message is subject to confirmation through scripture. That even a teacher, if they give you a different message that contradicts scripture, you have to reject that teacher's message. Sometimes that's chewing the meat and spitting out the bones, meaning some things they say are going to be good, but other things they are confused on and they're teaching it. And it's your responsibility to take that to the scriptures, to test that, and to reject the bad doctrine of that. So the last verse that we're going to look at here uh, is John's clarification of basically what was the truth that was given to them. Um, what tools have we, because of this anointing, to understand? Uh, so he writes right at the outset of his letter, he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So it, as he goes through and he talks about the apostolic message, this witness is going to be important. He's saying, what I'm writing to you is true, and you can test things on this truth through the Holy Spirit. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He's speaking here of Jesus Christ. He is affirming that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Jesus Christ, God himself, came in the flesh. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. The message that they have given us, that the apostles have given us, is true because they witnessed it. They were taught it by Jesus Christ, and they've given it to us so that you too may have fellowship with us, with the apostles. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this body of the church, um, all has the equipping of the anointing of the spirit for understanding. Uh, when we read the scriptures, we can understand what they say uh, <clears throat> so that we can all be of one mind, of one body, of one baptism uh, together in this body of Christ for understanding. All right. So to summarize, in resisting the Antichrist, there is an Antichrist who will come at the end of the age, but his predecessors are already here. They're already preaching a false gospel. False teachers are here, and they will try to draw you out of the flock and make your witness uh, a poor witness. Just as the Antichrist will exalt himself, that means make himself higher, uh, as if he were God, so the Antichrists prepare the way for these false doctrines that will lead to the acceptance of the Antichrist. We can't accept uh, false doctrines that easily when they come in their full, complete form, but we'll accept little ideas along the way uh, so that uh, eventually when we've accepted a lot of little lies, the big lie is going to be easier to accept. And we're going to see, well, thankfully we won't see it because we are all saved in Jesus Christ and will be taken out of this earth before the Antichrist arrives on the scene. But we will see a remnant that is a, a not a true remnant of the church uh, after the rapture, that there are members of the church who are part of these false teachers with false doctrines who have never believed in the word of Jesus Christ, but have always taught a false message. That they will remain after after our rapturing away, 
they will continue to teach their false doctrines and their false doctrines will culminate in the acceptance of the antichrist as christ himself so that is where this false doctrine is leading and we don't want to be part of that we do not want to deny jesus christ and promote the idea of this antichrist within the church uh, that is an abomination to jesus christ these false teachers will claim authority and orthodoxy their departure from the original message of the apostles will prove that they are false. That when they leave the original apostolic message, we know for certain that they are teaching lies. We do not have to be fooled by their false doctrines because we are equipped through the anointing of the Holy Spirit to search the scriptures ourselves. So we want to search the scriptures prayerfully and consistently. Uh, so that is uh, the end of our lesson tonight i know we went a little long but uh oh we didn't go too long all right uh let's pray first and then we'll take any questions or you can you can go to sleep if you want uh, anything is fine but let's pray dear heavenly father we thank you so much that uh, we have your word by which we can uh, check the words of teachers today that we're not left just to fend for ourselves here on this earth, but that you've given these amazing gifts of the spirit, uh, that we can use them to their full function here on earth. That, uh, Lord, we, we pray that we are all filled with the Holy Spirit so that these positional truths might be used to their full function, that we have absolute assurance of our salvation because of our absolute assurance that one day we will be conformed to be like you lord we pray that you give us the equipping to live like that today uh, that we live even today um, as if we were with you together in the heavenlies because we know that positionally we are we are indeed together with you in the heavenlies anointed a holy priesthood so lord we thank you that you've given us this word uh, so that we can test the spirits. We thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit so that we can resist the Antichrist uh, on this earth. And Lord, we pray that you return quickly for your church. Uh, though we, we love to be about your work here, we recognize the darkness of this day and the evil of this age. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you do come quickly and take those who are yours uh, to be with you. So Lord, we pray all these things in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. 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 All right. Are there any questions or comments or, or prayer requests that we can all take through the week? I have a Thank you, Pastor Dane. No problem. <laughs> so good night, everyone. Good night, Janet. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nida. Bye. Bye.